Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. Hi, my name is Jose Hernandez, and I had a near-death experience in the year 2000. Thank you for being here with us, and I'm going to share a little bit of that story with you, and I hope that uh, changes your life in a good way. So I was working in Miami Beach, you know, we're running electrical lines Wednesday night. I'll never forget it. It's easy to remember because it was the day before Thanksgiving. But we were running a little late and uh, we had a lot of work still to do. So we decided that we were going to try to take some shortcuts and uh, we did that. And it resulted in me getting injured on the job. And it wasn't anything as elaborate as being electrocuted or anything like that. But uh, I broke a bunch of ribs, wound up in an ER. They taped me up, they gave me some painkillers. Painkillers had some uh, anti-inflammatory in it. And I went home. An hour after I was home, it was really difficult to breathe. And I called up the ER and I said, hey guys, I'm really struggling here. You know, I'm thinking, is that normal or whatever? And I said, no, you're all taped up, don't worry about it. You can't take a deep breath anyway. It just feels like you can't breathe. So at that time I was very science-based and math-based. So uh, I embraced that. And I said, this guy knows what he's doing. He's a professional. And uh, I uh, took it to heart. So it wasn't like I stopped breathing that night. It was a very slow process. I kept continuing to take these pills. And my breathing was slowly getting worse and worse. And uh, I got through Christmas. And I got through New Year's Eve. And, and that year was an interesting you know, New Year's Eve because it was the Y2K. So everybody was worried about something could go wrong with the internet and stuff like that. And, you know, there were all these crazy rumors and stuff. Uh, but I was oblivious. That past New Year's, I'm going to just say an interesting note was I decided on Christmas Day to go visit everyone that I knew, even though I could barely get around. I couldn't understand that at the time. But Get past New Year's Eve, comes January 5th. I finally can't take it anymore. I just couldn't breathe at all. So I told my wife at the time, I said, you got to take me to the hospital. I can't breathe. And they did. She and my son took me to the hospital. It was about 11 at night. Got to the hospital. By the time they triaged and got me ready, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning. And then they decided they were going to admit me. So I had some IVs and some stuff going. And uh, looked at my wife and, I, and my son. And I said, hey, guys, no sense you're staying here. I'm going to be fine. Don't, don't worry about it. Just go home. It was a good 40-minute drive. And they left. When they left, the nurse comes into the room and she says to me, Jose, you know, here's this button. 
It's right there by your bed. If you need anything, push that button. And I'll be, I'll come right in, right? So I'm looking at her like, you really think I'm going to push that button? I'll never push that button, right? I'm thinking guy, like a guy, right? Yeah, I'm a tough guy. And she left. And there was a clock right above the door. I kept looking at it and uh, watching that time slowly tick by. And uh, it was really hard to breathe. So what I wanted to do was push the button. What my ego kept telling me, no, you're a guy, you could tough this out, you're going to be fine. And don't push the button. So that was a bit of a conflict for me. So for 45 minutes, 50 minutes, I was wrestling with that thought. Push the button, don't push the button. Push the button, don't push the button. Finally couldn't take it anymore, I pushed the button. It's almost two in the morning now. And uh, it took about one minute for the nurse to get to the room. And that was probably the longest moment of my life. Just felt like forever. And when she got there, she opened the door. She just looked at me, she turned to her left and hit the cold blue button. And in my mind, I'm kind of going like, what? She just didn't do that, did she? Thought was, well, that's about me. The next thing I know, the room's getting filled with people, the crash teams. And I hear the cold blue, you know, being announced. The shock of seeing her do it was one thing. The realization that this was happening to me was another. And I'm going to share with you what that experience felt like. And uh, so the first thing I felt, if you can believe, was shame. And people would ask me, why were you ashamed? Well, I was had this sheet on me and I was covering myself with I'm trying to hang on to this sheet as tight as I can. They just stripped me down, just so helpless that I couldn't hang on to that. And they lift me up, they put me on this board. Uh, they put this board under me and uh, they start doing CPR and they start trying to save my life. I'm thinking kind of like this is not real, it's real. It's really happening. And the first thought I'm saying is, don't worry, you're going to be okay. Just nothing, you know, don't, don't be afraid. Then I started to think about what if this was real? I would never see anyone in my family again. That thought, this was the second thing, made me feel like I was falling. And it was a free fall and a free fall. And I kept falling, falling. And I, I kept getting lower and lower and lower and desperate because I realized that if this was real, I would never see anyone from my family again. I would never be able to say goodbye to anybody. I wouldn't be able to hold them, look into their eyes one last time and broke my heart. It's uh, difficult to put into words what thinking of a loss that is so full, so encompassing because you're going to lose not only your loved ones and everyone you know, but everything you know. Everything that I've seen, everything that I'm aware of is just going to go away. And I just kept falling. I couldn't stop that free fall. And I felt this tremendous knot in my chest. And uh, it was emotion. And that knot was so strong that it overcame the, my inability to breathe. So I, when you can't breathe, you can't take air in and you can't let air out. So it was like nothing. It made me incredibly, incredibly sad. To realize that even if they were able to get in touch with my family, they would never be able to get there in time. So fear setting. I grew up in the South Bronx. I was thought I was a pretty tough kid and stuff like that, but fear setting. I've been a lot of crazy situations in my life, but the first time I actually felt this profound fear 
and it uh, was overwhelming. And my impulse was to ask, I want somebody to hold my hand. Uh, I couldn't ask for someone to hold my hand, but I could reach out. There were so many people in that room. And uh, at that moment, crazy thing happens. I start thinking about my dad, who had died five years before. Now, me and my father were always fucking heads and fighting. You know, he was, uh, he used to drink. And uh, when he drank, he was quite abusive. And uh, he would abuse all of us, but mostly my mom. So when I was about 12 or 13, I decided I had to kind of be her champion or whatever, however you want to look at that. And I used to fight on her behalf. Didn't do much good when I was very young, but as I got older, I was able to kind of get him to back off a little sometimes. But anyway, I thought about him and, and his ways, and his way was, I'm a guy, I'm tough. Not only am I tough, I can't show any fear. And uh, he, he's half First Nation, so he had this concept of being a life taker and a life taker to provide for your family. You know, we, he took it to an extreme that was a little bizarre. That's how we grew up, emotionless. We were like, he stripped us of that. And I know why he did it, but it still didn't make any sense to me. You know, he wanted us to survive in the hood. But uh, anyway, that feeling of I can't show any fear kind of kicked in and I remember my body stiffened and I couldn't show any fear and I wouldn't and I'll never forget it. The next thing I know I started thinking about God or Creator and uh, I didn't believe in God or Creator at the time. When I was with you would call an atheist and I was very math like I said science based and I thought that was the answer to everything so I'm thinking I'm going to be turned off like a light switch and I'm just going to go out and I'm going to become nothing. And that created a tremendous amount of fear. I started thinking, well, maybe Creator is real, maybe God is real. And I started saying, God, if you're real, this is a good time for you to show, show me. I told him, you know, I'm negotiating. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to, if you could intervene. I waited about 20 seconds, and those were really long seconds. Nothing happened, nothing changed, and I got angry. And then I started saying, what are you doing? You, you know, it's not real anyway. At that point, my heart started to get very irregular, so it's really racing. And they give me all these meds to try to keep me alive and keep me breathing, and my heart starts racing, and uh, it sounds like a horse running out of step. It's very irregular. And the next thing I know, it stops. The thing about that is that you hear that in the monitor. So you hear that beep, 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 and then beep. Mentally, that was the most deflating moment of my life. I knew that I was dead, that I was going to die. I was angry at God. Then that didn't matter anymore. What mattered was, how do I make peace with what's happening? What happens physically is that I hear the IV drips sound like rain hitting a tin roof. Splash, splash, splash. I could see the wallpaper. And I'm about 15 or 20 feet away from the wall, but I could see the, the grain in the wallpaper. I'm wondering what, what's causing that. And at the same time, I'm telling myself so I can embrace what's happening. There's no shame in giving up. Because we grew up in a world where that would be shameful. I quit. And I'm not quitting. 
there's nothing I could do to stop this chain of events. So it's okay to die. When I gave myself permission to die, I was looking at the door, frame of the door, and left open. And uh, it was really bright. And I could see like the shadow there. And the minute I said it was okay to die, that shadow moves in, moves around everybody, and then just touches me. And when that shadow touched me, I just felt this incredible sense of love and peace and calm and everything. So perfect. Nothing was wrong. And I could breathe. And then there was this warm breeze that was coming from the bottom of the bed up and I could feel it blowing real warm and it made me feel so good and safe. I got long hair, right? So I'm thinking my hair is going to be blowing in this wind and I had this vision of my head just blowing in the wind and I felt like I was being lifted, lifted, lifted. The next thing I know, I wind up on the other side of the room and I'm watching what's going on. First thing I realized, that's me on the bed. And I said, that's me. I also realized that I was dead, and then I said, that's me, and I'm dead. But then the magical question of the changer for me was, when I said, but if that's me, then who am I? And I realized I was so much more than just that body. Then I heard a voice on my list, and uh, she said to me, visualize your body as if it was a car. And this car has like 5 million miles on it, we can't fix it anymore, so you got to say goodbye to your body. So I just finished saying goodbye to life. Now I'm being asked to say goodbye to my body. And I look at my body. And I had always been unsatisfied with the way I look, with the way my body was, with everything about me. I was always so judgmental. And I, I hated so much about me. But this time when I looked at my body, it was so beautiful. And I started to realize that that body sacrificed itself for me, gave itself up for me, did whatever I asked even if it could have injured and never failed me. And I realized how much I had loved my body and who I had been. Then I started to get these little memories. And you'd think the memories would be these profound moments in your life, like really crossroad type events, right? But it was just the simple everyday moments of every day. Taking a deep breath, looking in my kids' eyes when they were little, holding my little brother's hands listening to a bird sing. Simple, simple, everyday events of life. And I realized that I had missed life. I had missed life because I was working my buns off, trying to live the American dream, whatever you want to call that. And at this point, I realized that things didn't matter. Acquiring stuff didn't matter. Trying to be better than somebody else and get past them at work and make more money didn't matter. What mattered was all these things that I had in life that were free, that were right there every moment, every day. And I never saw it. And so I felt pain by that thought that I had really missed my life. That I didn't have. I never saw what life really was about. It's about all these simple moments that we enjoy every day. Those 20, 30 breaths we take in a minute. What we're able to see, feel, hear. It's an amazing journey life. And I was humbled. And that made me really love who I had been and love the body that I had owned. The voice says to me at that point, we gotta keep going, we gotta go. And I moved with her. And we kind of walk out of this hospital and I'm in this place where there's like this big back hole in front of me. And we walk into it and I fall in and I feel like this tearing and ripping and I feel a little discomfort. 
And then we land and she said, we gotta keep going. And the same thing happens again. And I feel the discomfort. This time when I land, I'm in the middle of a wall. If you imagine a ball and I'm right in the center of it. And all around me is color. And that color is moving. It's beautiful. And so I, I hear like a million voices, like a chatter. And that's the colors talking to me. Then I hear the voice clearly say to me, what discomfort you felt was all those bad moments in your life, all that negativity can't move in the space with you. It has to be removed. I have to be pure to come into this place. And I understood that. Then I feel color moving. And I don't know if it's moving toward me or if I'm moving toward the color. All I know is that eventually I'm absorbed into the color. And what was interesting about it was that I wasn't judged. I was received in such a good way. I'll never forget that feeling. It made me just feel so good to be seen, you know, looked at as something that's equal and just as great as what I'm moving into. Because usually uh, it was the opposite that I felt being judged and stuff like that. And it just accepted me. And I guess that's a powerful word, acceptance. And it took me in. And I could hear that chattering. And then, in, if I could call it a mind, because I don't have a body. I was being told how to paint, how to draw, how to do all these things, and how, how to start, and the whole reason why. And then I moved to the colors, I come out on the other side, and when I'm on the other side, first thing I think about is my kids. And I hear the voice say, don't worry, you can see them from here, and that just made me feel so peaceful and calm. I could see this forest right in front of me, and these mountains, beautiful mountains in the background, and herds of animals just running around, it was so beautiful. And that sense of peace, calm, and love. I mean, there's no way to describe it. I'm sure you've heard that before, but it really isn't. Just the only sense that's there is that love and that sense of peace and calm that it creates when you feel loved. Then I saw this big tree in front of me and I started moving towards it. I realized that I'm flying and I said, I'm flying. And the voice said, that's normal here. And I get to the tree, and as I get close to it, I become the tree, and I can feel its heart, and I can feel it feeding itself from the ground, from Mother Earth, taking its nutrients. And that was such a profound experience because it just allowed me to feel something that I never experienced in life. Then I became the leaf, I became the air, I became the birds. Everything that I got near, I became with stones. And I realized that everything had life, even though sometimes it looked like it doesn't. It's made of the same things I was made of, and because of that, it's own the sense of spirit. And that's the only thing we own, that little sense of spirit that we have, that little spark. And I looked up at the mountains, and for some reason, I want to get up there. I can see the snow on the top. And I'm a city kid, so imagine I grew up in New York City. We don't have mountains, and I live in Florida. So, you know, it's really interesting where I wound up. I decided I want to go up there and see what's going on. So I move up towards the mountain and I finally get to the top and I look to the right and on the right I see the sun. And it looks like it's either setting or rising low on the horizon. And it's really beautiful and I can feel that warm air coming and I'm thinking even there like, wow, this was giving me this lift, this was allowing me to fly. I can see the flares coming out. So imagine looking at the sun through a telescope and you can see it, the flares coming out of it and it's so warm and it's kind of calling me. 
And I look to the left and I see this beautiful U-shaped beach, cove. And uh, I look down and uh, I see a man and he's in the water like knee deep. And he's got six kids on one side in the line and one kid on the other. And it's in the water knee deep. And I'm looking, should I go to the sun? Should I go to the, this man? And I decide I want to go see who this man is. I want to check that out. So I move down and uh, I finally get to where this man is. I might be 10 or 15 feet in distance away from him. And he turns around. And when he turns around, I realized it was my dad. I also realized that I was gonna be able to do here what I'd never been able to do in life and tell my dad that I love him. We never hugged, that wasn't what men do, so I, I don't ever remember hugging my dad in life. But I made sure that I was gonna do it here, so those were my thoughts, I'm gonna hug my dad, I'm gonna tell him I love him. And uh, I could hear him in my head, but he wasn't moving his lips. We weren't talking like this. It was just a communication that was happening. And the magic of that experience was that he forgave me to a certain degree and I forgave him. And when I hugged him, I lived his life in a few seconds. And I realized that he had been proud of me and how he loved me and how he cared and all that stuff and how he never said any of those words. It went unsaid. And then it got to the point where I was able to forgive myself. And I think that's the most powerful part of that journey of self-forgiveness that I was allowed to have. And uh, we let go of each other's. And I just want to say this, we, we think we know what it feels like to walk in somebody else's shoes because we've had similar experiences. The way I integrate that, the way I process that is very different and the way you process it, even if we happen to be in the same, the same place at the same time, having the same experience together. And I honored my father. And then he looked at me and he says to me, you know, Jose, you gotta go. You gotta go back. Not your time. And I'm looking at him like, no way, I'm not leaving here. I like it here. That's in stark contrast to when I was dying. I was so fearful of leaving my family behind. And were they ready? Are they gonna be able to survive without me? There were so many fears I had for them. And, uh, says, no, you got to go back. And I feel this pull from here, but really my back. And I wind up back in body. I open my eyes for a second. The doctor that's doing CPR, she just leans her head back and I'm back with my dad. And uh, we're having this debate. You got to go. No, I don't want to go. You got to go. No, I don't want to go. I said to him. Then he finally looked at me. He said, you know, Jose, let's make a deal. The thing about my daddy was always making deals. So I just said, you know what? What's the deal? Tell me the deal looked at me and he said, when your time comes, I promise I'm going to go get you. And when he said that, I was like, greatest deal that I've ever heard. For some reason, I'm looking at him and I'm saying, wow, that's such a great deal. How could I not take that? And I said, okay. The minute I said, okay, in that second, that pull taking place and I wound up in my body. First thing that happens when I'm in my body, I get two thoughts. One is, well, am I such a bad person? Was I such a bad person that I just got kicked out of heaven? And the second thing is, I'm in here. I'm separate from everything all of a sudden. I'm not one. I lost that sense of oneness that I was experiencing over there. And I, you know, now everything's distinct. Everything's 
away. I could touch it, I could feel it, but it's not part of me anymore. And that made me feel really down. Uh, they had stabilized me. I was intubated. I wound up in hospital for three months. And uh, about six weeks, seven weeks into it, I was able to took the intubation out. And uh, I was able to tell the doctor, ask him a simple question, a cardiologist. And I said, hey, I think I went somewhere. And the guy looked at me and said, no way. You know, your brain is still alive for two minutes after your heart stops. You're, we gave you all these medications. You had DMT. So basically, he said, this wasn't real. Him telling me that and him being a very science-based person and a part of me still being very science-based, embraced that and it created a concept for me. The experience was so spiritual and loving and kind. And what he was saying was it wasn't real. And then I'm thinking, well, maybe something's wrong with my head. So I, six months after I'm home and I finally walk, I have an oxygen tank. I, head out and I start seeing mental health professionals and I'm trying to see what my issue is. Now when I left the hospital I was addicted to self medication so I had to go through that battle of getting on that path of recovery. It took me three years and uh, I, I'm grateful for the mental health professionals that helped me with that but I struggle with the fact that I'm going to see the mental health professionals for all these years and I'm unable to say why I'm going there. And I'm talking about a near-death experience. And I'm wondering if that was real. For some reason, I never heard of NDEs or things like that. I thought I was isolated. What it just happened to me? After three years, I finally meet someone that's a little open. She looked at me. And believe me, I haven't talked for three years. I, I just sit there and talk about the weather and stuff. Wondering if this is a normal process of mental health. But anyway, I, I finally get with this forward-thinking mental health professional and she looked at me and she said, Jose, I'm not supposed to do this. And she sat right next to me and she took my hand. And when she took my hand, I was right back in that bed, desperately wanting someone to hold my hand because I was so scared. She took that. So when she takes my hand, that touch, that simple warmth of her body, took me back to that place and I was able to share my story with her. The story that I've shared with you now. And I had some issues with it. I wasn't sure if it was real. I'm wondering if it was maybe that doctor was right. She made that choice for me easy. One day she looked at me and she said, Jose, what do you want to believe? Do you want to believe that your dad, you met your dad and he's going to come back and get you when your time comes? Or do you want to believe you're going to turn into nothing? Which one do you want to believe? That was a no brainer. She allowed me to embrace the experience and uh, didn't happen instantly, but it took a little while. But finally she introduced me to uh, IANS and uh, I was able to meet people that had the same experience and shared that concept that I've been the only one that had that experience. Being isolated like that is very scary. I was able to take that experience, the experience of mental health after. and. What I've done with this experience now is that we've created a mindfulness practice that is very profound. We've been really blessed. I mean, I started in 2008, but now we, we've been involved. We got involved with a behavioral health company and they're embracing it and they're putting it out in, into the communities. And we're starting with really the vulnerable sector. So people that have addiction issues and are struggling with 
trauma, stuff like that, which is the vast majority of us. And uh, I just feel honored that we've been able to take that to that level, to that degree. The program is called Inner Immersion. If anybody's interested, they can just go to the website and check it out. Uh, but it's been a blessing. You know, when I died, it's hard to think of dying because when you die, you don't die. What I learned from dying was nothing about dying. I only learned about living. You know, how to live a better life. How to look at these moments, these simple moments that we experience every day. Love them. You know, I also learned how magical life is. Being over there on the other side is beautiful. There's no way to describe it, that sense of peace and calm and that love that you feel and that acceptance. But it taught me how magical this world is, just to be able to touch and feel and see all these beautiful things that God or the Creator have made for us. Because Mother Earth is our playground. And look how much beauty it holds. And that's for us. And so it changed my life in a good way. In that way, it made me understand just how this simple, so powerful, fills me with life, gives me what I need, and it doesn't cost a damn. Everything that we see out there is, doesn't cost any. People we love, love is free. And to have the capacity to do that here, and in particular to have an opportunity to change my life, everybody has this opportunity, every second that's in front of them. And I tell people we're always at that crossroad. At any moment, you can make a decision to change your life in a good way. And I work with a lot of people that are struggling, and that's really important for them to know because they don't feel they have that. So I will say that I do feel very blessed, very honored. I love life, and I'm going to love what comes after this life, this next life that's waiting for me. But while I'm here, my purpose is to make my purpose. And whatever I do, that's my purpose. It doesn't have to be anything magical, you know. I learned that one of my first jobs was at KFC. And uh, I was a little embarrassed about it because some of the other, my friends would tease me, oh, you're working at KFC. After the experience, I learned that the chicken that we were cooking and preparing, people would come to buy it and bring it home and feed their families and feed themselves. So it was serving. And it made me understand the simplicity of life. Life is very simple. We do so many simple things that serve others. We never really think about those things. We want to be like heroes or something and create these incredibly magical moments that the whole world's going to remember. But I know whatever I do here will be remembered. And that we will leave a mark, every one of us. And I know it might be cliche, but there is something about us that is incredibly unique and special. And usually, the one that has the most difficult seeing that, seeing that is us, each one of us. We don't see it in us. What that near-death experience taught me was to be able to identify and to honor it. So my message to everybody out there is make good memories. Make good memories because that's the only thing you're going to take with you. You can't take a penny, but you can take memories. I remembered who I was. I remembered the people in my life. I remembered my loved ones. And then I walk into a world where my ancestors or my dad was the first one. So there's magic everywhere. There's magic here. 
and magic in you. Anyway, I want to thank you for spending this time with me today. And uh, I hope that the story can help you stay in a good way, stay in a good way, to move, live life in a good way, to move on in a good way. My father's culture, he would be on his walk. I'm on my walk. We're on our walk. You're on your walk, your path, whatever you want to call it. Make good memories in that path. You're going to take that home with you. Anyway, thank you, everyone. I really appreciate you. May you have a blessed day, blessed life. Much peace. <laughs>